Planning for Tomorrow's Environment, produced by Content with Purpose in partnership with the Royal Town Planning Institute. Our response to the climate and ecological crisis requires heaps of innovation. We need to transform entire industries, reskill the workforce and create new jobs. That's one huge challenge, but one giant opportunity. So how does this affect you and your sector? Content with Purpose partners with professional member associations and trade bodies to delve into the future of their industries, asking the tough questions and showcasing the innovation propelling our net zero ambitions. Subscribe to this podcast to learn how the professionals in those industries are contributing towards our collective efforts to reach net zero and a more sustainable and prosperous future. Welcome to Planning for Tomorrow's Environment, an RTPI and Content with Purpose podcast series exploring the intrinsic role of planners in tackling climate change, paving the way to a sustainable, viable and vibrant future. Planning is vital. We all know that. As the old adage goes, failing to prepare is preparing to fail. So when it comes to taking on the biggest challenges of all, climate crisis and ecological emergency, planning really does have to be at the heart of everything that we do going forward. And the mission statement of the Royal Town Planning Institute is a bold one, to advance the science and art of planning working for the long-term common good and well-being of current and future generations. But does planning as a whole have enough support from government to allow these challenges to be met? Are there enough people coming into the profession? Is there enough strength in depth to make sure that not only do we come up with good plans, but that we have the ability to actually enforce them and bring them to reality? They're all huge questions. And over the course of this podcast series, we hope to be able to answer at least some of them. Well, I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by Tim Crawshaw, who at the time we're recording this podcast is president of the RTPI, and Alafi Ntuu, who's the co-chair of Planners for Climate Change. Tim, perhaps I can turn to you first of all, and perhaps you could uh, give us an overview of who you are and what the RTPI does. Right, OK, well, my name's Timothy David Crawshaw. Uh, I am the president of the Royal Town Planning Institute, um, and we are a membership body for professional town planners around the world. So there's 27,000 of us uh, across 83 different countries, uh, and I think we're the, the global thought leader when it comes to uh, the art and the science of, of town planning, uh, which extends, of course, in many other ways uh, and in many other places to city and regional planning. So in some ways, the town bit is is sometimes a bit of a misnomer <laughs> because actually we do cover the whole discipline of planning from, you know, from national down to absolutely local. Um, and in my role, um, I'm, you know, championing the, the mission of the RTPI, but also championing the role of the professional planner to make the world a better place. And that's probably speaking, that's my mantra for this year. Excellent. Making the world a better place is a good thing to be attempting to do, isn't it? Definitely. So let's give it a bit of context then. Do you think that that planners within the UK are are genuinely aware of how vital their role is when it comes to tackling climate change and the ecological emergency? Um, Absolutely. So um, in my experience, everybody I've spoken to as a professional planner would, would fully understand their their ability for the for their professional professional discipline to make a huge difference to both, uh, and I think in many ways the thing you're trained to do would very much have you know that as one of the key parts of sustainable development too. You know, if you're looking at social, economic, and environmental issues, um, I think when the when the rubber hits the road, as they say, though, or you know, when it comes down to it, uh, there's a lot of structural region, reasons why it's actually quite difficult to deliver on those things, though. Um, and there's a tension between 
getting things done, which which clearly, you know, we do need infrastructure, we do need housing, um, and we do need to, um, you know, for growth to happen. Um, but actually then there's a tension between that and the ambitions that you might find uh, in the actual local plan. And often that comes down to, to viability. So there are some structural reasons why, um, you know, the, the climate and ecological emergency isn't sometimes seen as being the key consideration. Although I do really believe that lots of people are working towards trying to solve those problems. But like I say, there's, there's a few reasons why it might not be something that is, you know, front and centre. Right, OK. So that's that's interesting. We'll dig into more on that. And also, I just want to sort of get a bit of an idea of the urgency, if you like. Do, do people recognise that we really need to be putting stuff in place today, planning today, rather than putting it off till tomorrow or the day after to actually start making those changes? Um, I think I think so, because, I mean, if you think about it, both the climate emergency and the ecological emergency uh, are now almost universally in, in sort of people's minds and, and now mainstream thinking in many ways there was a lot of tension for a lot of years because there was you know quite large voices out there that were claiming there wasn't really any climate change happening or there wasn't the climate emergency I think as particularly local authorities have um, declared a climate emergency uh, there's a bit of a time lag because clearly the, the process of plan making is quite a long drawn out process in its own right. So even from a standing start, you're looking at a few years. So what you're seeing, we've got legacy of um, local plans which were developed around a certain time and a certain context. And now you end up with a climate emergency. And then, you know, frustratingly for members and for anybody else watching, the actual plan itself is probably not quite caught up. So there's gonna be a bit of a time lag because plan making takes time. And then if you are planning for a longer period of time, we've got to have the faith that the next iteration and round are going to reflect that mainstream thinking. But if it's five years ago, even even five years ago, if you mentioned, you know, the climate emergency, it was like a very new, well, you know, a new thing. Now, more and more places are declaring that. And um, and it's very hard, unless you have it in the plan, to get it delivered, you know? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So it's, it's, it, at least the thought process is definitely changing. Planning for tomorrow's environment. Produced by Content With Purpose in partnership with the Royal Town Planning Institute. This episode is sponsored by Atkins and the School of Geography and Planning at Cardiff University. Atkins, a member of the SNC Lavlin Group, is a market-leading environmental planning and project management consultancy, transforming infrastructure delivery. Cardiff University's School of Geography and Planning generates knowledge that helps shape places, people and policies for sustainable futures. You can learn more about their work on our digital series website, planningfortomorrow.rtpi.org.uk. Planning for Tomorrow's Environment, produced by Content with Purpose in partnership with the Royal Town Planning Institute. So let, let's bring uh, Alafi in, into it now. Alafi and Tyro, um, give us a bit of an idea about who you are and what you actually do. What is Planners for Climate Action? Thank you, Rob. Uh, my name is Olafin, as you mentioned. Um, I am all, I'm a doctoral researcher at UCL, and I'm also the co-chair for the Planners for Climate Action, at the, particularly the Working Group 2, focused on education and uh, capacity building. The Planners for Climate Action was actually um, established. It's a collaborative initiative that was established at the 23rd uh, COP in Bonn in 2017, and the main aim really is to integrate climate change in the professional practices of all planners 
and across their institutions and just to ensure that there is an integrated approach to reducing emissions and to prepare the human settlement to adapt to climate change uh, and also to build the capacity of planners uh, by ensuring that at all levels, particularly from the graduate level, planners and urban planners in particular are better suited to respond to the climate challenges. And as we were just hearing from uh, Timothy a moment ago, I mean, it is a super tanker to try and turn around when it comes to planning. It takes several years for things to kind of work through the system, sometimes even longer than several years. So have you got a bit of an idea of the, the, the context of what needs to be done in the future to put planners in the situation where they can actually have the ability to, to, to realise those kind of changes and actually make them happen. Uh, thank you, Rob. I think uh, when, we, when we talk about in the future, we have to start from now, really. Uh, we can't wait to the future. And what needs to happen now is our planners are aware of um, climate challenges. We are, we are, everyone is now aware, almost everyone in the beauty environment profession is aware of that. And uh, really, in, in the UK, planning environmental crisis, environmental management, addressing environmental risk has been embedded in planning for a long time in the UK. And it's just now adding, looking at it holistically. Um, uh, what, what can be done in the future? I think it starts from now, really making planners more aware of the importance of climate change and of the importance of planning in address, as a critical tool for addressing climate crisis. I think that's where the gap is. Uh, we are not just one of those other professions. We are a critical profession that is needed to address climate change. And that needs to start from now. And and, the, and this is this crucial thing, isn't it? Because it, it is two prongs. You've got people who are inside planning who need to understand that changes have got to be made, but you've got people outside of planning. And crucially, that means government taking it seriously. Yes, I think so. One of the things we have to do is uh, when we planners who are inside of planning understand the importance of who we are to the system, then we are then able to communicate that better to the government. And that's where the gap is. And uh, so there are, we have the different beauty environment professions that are already addressing climate change in, in, in a way, in, in their own way. But if we as planners then come and, and assert our responsibilities, our set our duties and say, we have the role of bringing in all these different professions, the, the ability to implement their projects, their designs, bring that together. We can coordinate that and that's our responsibility. And if we can then articulate that to the government, to the policy makers, to policy entrepreneurs and to the local communities, then they have a better understanding and appreciation of what the, the planning profession is and what planners are. And the future planners really are getting, they're they eager, people eager to understand how can they get involved in addressing climate change? How can they get involved, not just in addressing climate change, but in ensuring that they have a, a sustainable community to live in. And so that's in, when we are able to communicate this, we are also able to attract these people who are already passionate and are looking for ways to address climate crisis and ecological emergency. We are able to attract them into the profession. And uh, passionate's the key word there. And, and Timothy, you were nodding away in agreement. Well, absolutely. I mean, I think the role of professional planners has got to be, again, beyond the regulatory as well and, and something around ambition. So I think I think often it's seen as the planning's been seen as being the regulatory sort of backstop really for for trying to protect us from the worst consequences of the climate and ecological emergencies. But actually, it's incumbent on everybody who's proposing something, and that's people both within and outside planning, 
to be really thinking about the consequences of the development that's happening right now, because every decision today is going to have a massive impact down the line. So it's it's not just it's not just incumbent on us as regulators. It's actually for us as proposers as well, and those people who are working to try and marshal all those forces together. Which the built environment is a very complex thing. Uh, planners should be right at the heart and the centre of that. Uh, and I, I really believe that we are. But I think sometimes we need to step forward a bit and and start to be really quite proactive in terms of championing those bigger outcomes um, rather than effectively playing cat and mouse with the system, which is the other end of that, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. And this is the thing, isn't it? Because planning, it covers such a huge gamut of things that you've got the kind of the huge macro projects like HS2 or, or uh, building new nuclear power stations. And then you've got the real micro stuff, which is people wanting to put a, an extension on the back of their house and trying to fit those extremes under one umbrella is incredibly difficult. So let's dig into a bit of the detail. And talk about some of the the kind of the hot topics going forward. Um, heating and cooling. Let's let's start there. That's a, a good one to dig into because energy and how you make houses, buildings energy efficient is critical to all of this, isn't it, Timothy? Absolutely. So, I mean, I mean, for me, what I see coming at us now, particularly with the cost of living crisis and and really the whole thing around um, you know fuel security. Um, and, and energy security um, is that, that heating and cooling is going to be the next big issue because really the grid won't cope <laughs> if we're starting to electrify everything to provide our heating needs. And some things you really just can't do um, through heat pumps as well. So there's a massive opportunity in terms of us being really smart about the use of waste heat, uh, but also balancing loads across a wider district. And that's when the role of things like district heating and cooling uh, are really important, and also microgrids. So uh, rather than us being dependent upon the, the grid for everything, I think we need to be a lot more localised in our approaches to energy. So how would that actually look then? How would that work? So, so in, terms of, in terms of energy, if you have a, a district heating system, a district cooling system, you can balance loads across. So if you have a, a source of waste heat, that can go into the system. So uh, I'll just give you an example of, of one of the ones where you've got a waste heat opportunity in, in Helsinki. Um, the, they have a data centre and there was an inquiry came in, can we have a data centre near Helsinki because it's in the north and it's cooler. And uh, the mayor very smartly said, yeah, sure, bring bring that to town. Um, so the data centre is actually underneath the cathedral <laughs> and actually the waste heat from the data centre then goes into the district heating system. Uh, and that's the kind of practical uh, application. Same thing in Paris, you know, public swimming pool that's heated from a data centre. And often when we, you know, we're all taking pictures of our breakfast dogs or tattoos and sticking them on Facebook, all of that requires energy. Um, and actually to be able to use the waste heat from that activity to then go back into the system means it's, it's no longer just a, a zero point, you know, in terms of, oh, it's just cost us. Actually, we're getting something back from our activities so that's a simple one you know these kind of things though that it's a, it's a simple idea isn't it if something's generating heat actually capturing that heat and using it for a beneficial thing rather than just pumping it into the air it, it seems like a no-brainer and yet it doesn't always happen um yes it doesn't always happen because uh of silo walking most of the time uh, we don't get to work with uh, the different professions don't get to work together. And even within the local authority, the different departments don't get to work together. And uh, that's where we have a lot of wastage, um, as a kind of, because it's a wastage of resources, um, both human resources and at the same time, uh, 
other natural resources as well because if we if we need to work, start working together we need to we as planners uh, on a as as a leader as a custodian we need to start working with other departments to find out what exactly are they doing and how can we maximize extend the life cycle of the resources that are being used and that's where the the challenges are so, uh when when we when we don't if departments are working together that's something that i know that the greater manchester combined authority are working on uh where they are now they have a, a decarbonization plan five-year plan they're working on the renewing uh, on renewing the plan now for 20 i think 2023 for the next five years and that's the plan of uh, embedding industrial strategy transport strategy and the, the building codes embedding all the, the building designs and design codes embedding all that into a a, a big uh, decarbonization plan is how we can then work to make sure that the resources are maximized and we're able to achieve the outcome rather than us because at, at some point we have duplication of efforts as well across across mm -hmm. that uh the, the the sphere of local government local communities everyone doing the same thing but if we work together it would we would have a stronger outcome yeah so breaking those silos down would be a hugely important element of that um i know that health and well-being is a, is a key element of the stuff that you're often thinking about and i was just looking at some statistics talking about the fact that there is a major shortage of planners in the UK. I think something like 90% of local authorities have got an enforcement backlog at the moment. Uh, it's something like a 43% net decrease in spending on planning overall since the financial crisis in, in 2009-10. Um, there, there, there isn't enough officers around there to just do the workload. So from your perspective as somebody who's looking at health and wellbeing, of the people who are actually working in planning, we've got a major issue at the moment, haven't we? Yes, we do. We do have... Uh, there's a lot of stress um, on planners, particularly uh, development management planners and planners in planning enforcement as well. There's a lot of stress, a lot of mental health uh, challenges that they have to go through because of, of the work put together. And that's that's an issue that needs to be addressed uh, because if we have to, we have a shortage of planners, like you've mentioned, and we need more planners, but we also need to retain the planners that we have. And uh, we're seeing planners leaving the profession, particularly leaving local authority, to go to other sectors uh, in order to be able to better manage their health but it's it's around like how can we make it better how can we and, and that's where the the part the need to work together really comes into play in this and they need to to start thinking outside of the box to start thinking creatively at how can we engage the communities but in addressing these um in, in resolving enforcement cases how can we can we do better with mediation rather than um, just the cancer being the first point of call. Uh, is there, can we do with mediation? Can there be community groups or neighborhood groups working together to resolve enforcement issues before when it's not necessarily a, when, when mediation can solve it? And then when it extends that, it then gets to the local authorities, um, to, the, to the local planners um, table to then walk on. So this is just looking at how we can address that in a way that it takes the stress off. There's a pressure, the work has to be done, it has to be resolved. How can we resolve it? And, and Timothy, I, yeah, I mean, you were again nodding away to, to what uh, Lafayette was saying there, but th this really is a, a crucial issue over the next decade or so. If you haven't got enough people available to do the job, it's going to be really difficult to tackle all these climate and, and, and environmental issues if you just haven't got a department that can actually grind everything through the mill. 
Well, absolutely. Um, and I think it, it, it's very similar to many of the other public sector disciplines that are out there that we all rely on. Um, you know, if you look at like, the health service, you know, it's actually really difficult to recruit and retain people in, in really key jobs. And, and being a planner is, you know, in, in, in many ways, a, a very, very important role in the whole picture of public health. Uh, even though people don't often connect that, actually, the, the role of a planner is saving so much money down the line that we do need to find a different way of, of paying for that expertise in local authorities. And the moment the disparity between what you can earn and your terms and conditions in the private sector are way, way better in many ways than what you're going to find in, in, in the public sector. And somehow we're going to have to find some way of, of both making it more attractive um, to stay, and that's through progression as well. Often local authorities don't allow the progression at the rate at which you'd like. So your only opportunity to progress almost is to go out of that. Um, but also when it comes down to sort of paying conditions as well, um, planning is quite a special uh, case and discipline. Um, and I think in that way, I think we perhaps need to think about other mechanisms to be able to pay people more, actually, absolutely bottom line. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, I think, depending on where you are in the country, the sort of money that you can afford to pay people won't attract them because they won't be able to live there. Obviously, as the president of the RTPI, you get to be in the room with some quite interesting people. Do you think that the, the senior people in government get that these days? Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, you mentioned since the, since the financial crash, and, and I think whoever's in power has got a lot of things to um, juggle and prioritise at the moment. I think if you ask people, I think most people would recognise the problem. I just don't think we're overly good at working out what the solution looks like. Um, and I think in many ways, um, if we're going to have an effective planning system, it would probably need looking at root and branch and really think about what the purpose of planning is for um, and think about perhaps elevating the technical skills a little bit more as well and a bit more trust in you know, professionals and experts might help quite a long way because in certainly in terms of development management, as an awful lot of time is spent dealing with objections, for example, which is fine and legitimate, but broadly speaking, by the time you've been through all that and the political process, there's a huge amount of uncertainty all around, a very elongated process, and actually the outcome is probably not as good as it could be <laughs> if we'd all agreed on what the outcome should look like. Mm. Um, so so there's, 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 I think there's a, a bit more thinking needs to be done because we've actually got this, this thing that's been around since 1947 in the form that more or less it is now, um, and I'm not sure that's fit for purpose for right now. Um, you know, if we're going to deliver on some of these bigger promises that we really do need to keep for the next, you know, generations to come. Absolutely. So, Elafi, and I know that as, as part of your different roles, you have a lot of connections with people across the Commonwealth and in other countries outside of the UK. Is, is planning viewed radically different in, differently in some other parts of the world? Does the UK have lessons it could learn from other partners? Um, planning is the same, interestingly, um, across the Commonwealth. Uh, we share common heritage and uh, planning is the same. But yes, there are lessons that can be learned. And um, when it comes to, to the recognition of the profession as a dignified profession, I think a lot, needs, a lot more needs to be done across the Commonwealth as well. Um, however, the approaches in, in how we plan, and what we do as planners would help us to resolve a lot of the other challenges that arises as a result of, of the planning process. So, for example, um, 
this is what, what one of the examples I really like to share, which is the one around participatory planning. Um, in Indonesia, in, um, in, in the northern part of Java, the Demak district, for example, where they, they have involved the community in, in community planning to be able to then uh, look at what can be done to address a lot of the climate risk that they have existing because their job is at stake as local communities and these are existing problems and so what they have involved the community to then develop shared goals to coordinate actions and to also build on the traditional and local practices and knowledge that has worked in the past so that way it, it made it there is a, a shortage of planners everywhere there's a shortage of beauty environment professionals everywhere and so it's using the existing skills available to complement the, the the planning skills available. And this has led to the restoration of, of over 12 mile belt um, coastal mangrove. And it, it has introduced right. sustainable ag aquaculture. It has reduced groundwater extraction and have subsequently increased the resilience for over 70,000 residents. It is exactly that, isn't it? And nature-based solutions. And I know, Timothy, that's one of the things that you're really keen to, to, to kind of push forward is the fact that there, there's an awful lot of solutions out there that don't necessarily cost money, but they do require you to think a little bit and to not destroy the environment that's already there or restore some of the wetlands, for instance, that, that could be soaking up flood water, those kind of things. Um, some of those solutions need to be taken much more seriously and put front and centre of overall planning objectives. Couldn't agree more. I mean, every, every pound spent on nature-based solutions to say flooding is going to give you 20 back. So it's, it's not just around the cost, it's the actual investment as well. Um, so natural flood management, which... Um, you know, again, is now moving into people's consciousness and has become something that we can talk about. Uh, up until quite recently, people were very, very mistrusting of it. And it was like, oh, that will never work. What we need is to build more, more walls around those rivers, you know, rather than giving more room for water, for example. And that's a cultural shift. And I think it's better understood now. Um, so nature-based solutions uh, have got so much to offer, but it requires whole systems thinking now. I'd say as planners, we're in the best place to do that because we're, you know, we understand all the different disciplines that go into it. Um, and actually very few people can make those connections between say green infrastructure and downstream flood risk, for example, planners can. And I think it's for us to communicate that and, and, and actually work with our communities so they, they know to ask for more as well. I think sometimes people don't know what's on the menu, so they don't know what to ask for. And in broadly speaking, I think as planners, I think we can lift the lid on it and say, actually, it could be like this. And it's proposing a, a new positive future where that division between us and nature isn't there anymore. We understand that we are nature. Therefore, nature-based solutions become the natural choice for everybody. Um, so I think there's a, there's a huge amount of cost-effective investment we could make, like right now, that would also create employment, but also do three things at once, probably. If you think about you know, nutrients, carbon, uh, and biodiversity net gain. That green infrastructure is working really hard for you if you make an investment in it. And I think that's the thing that's got to be the, the new consciousness. Now, both of you are terrifically passionate advocates for what you do and why you do it. Is there a kind of a gap, if you like, in the public perception of what planning is about? Is there, is there a lack of spaces for you to be able to actually go out and talk to people around these kind of things to get people in local uh, areas fired up about these kind of issues that can really make a big difference. Alafian. Um Yes, just to answer your first question, Rob, there is actually a gap between what planning is and the comprehension and, and the public perception of planning. 
um, as a role. And that's it's our responsibility to make the public aware of what planning is, because it's always says if you don't tell your story, then you have to make do with whatever others say about you. So it's our responsibility to tell our story, to, to let the community know, to let the public know what planning is about and the capacity that planning has, and also how the plan planning is helping the community. Uh, generally, there's a negative perception about planners in terms of, oh, planners won't allow you to build your extension, or planners are the ones delaying the major development that needs to take place, the decision on that. But that's not just what planning is. It's The reason for the delay is because we want to be sure that it addresses all concerns and it's able to improve the quality of life of all residents concerned and the community. But if we don't explain that, if we don't say that, if we don't share that, then the public wouldn't know exactly what planning is about in that regard. So, yeah. so do you need to be, uh, I mean, are you wanting to say to your colleagues, come on, <laughs> speak up a bit, actually get involved in these conversations? Oh, yes, we need to do that. We really need to do that. And that's, I think this platform is, is the first one, is, is one of those, and is the first one, really. We need to do that. We need to start encouraging ourselves to speak out more. We need to we need to start going to meet people as well, going to the public. I know we need we have to go and meet them. We have to explain what we do. We have to also let them see what we do and how it affects their daily living. Uh, you wouldn't and mo most of the time it says unless that the Abraham Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs, unless those basic needs are met, people wouldn't really be concerned about other things and planning to them might be seen as the other things but if you let them know that planning is critical to where you walk to how you to your food your clothing your shelter to transportation that you need to be able to get these things that you need to be able to live the life that you want even at the barest minimum then if, if we are able to explain that to them then they become more interested in planning they want to know how they can get that better and how they can be involved in making that decision yeah, it's all around the talking. It's all around the talking, isn't it? Timothy, I want to just sort of bring in um, very briefly uh, another sort of subject if we can open up for a moment around the idea of compact growth being something that we really need to, to think more of um, so that we make the maximum use of the land that we already have that's being impacted by human activity brownfield sites as they tend to be called rather than building on, on fresh vegetation. Are we getting anywhere nearer to... to um, making that a reality i think i i think that the, the i think the understanding of the benefits of, of compact growth models and, and really combating sprawl which is the the, the, the you know the non-technical term for you know, towns just getting bigger and bigger um i think is is well understood i think that there's lots of structural reasons why it doesn't happen uh, because you have like fragmented ownerships you know potentially contaminated land um, to do with values and to do with the market as well, like who's bringing forward, say, development. You know, sometimes these are not the attractive uh, spots that immediately come to mind when people think, I want to buy a house. Um, but broadly speaking, when you get it right, they become incredibly sustainable places to live that, that meet all those requirements of the, you know, the, the walkable neighbourhood and everything else. But... Um, it's much, much easier to put new stuff at the side of the road next to a junction that's probably being subsidised uh, than it is to bring forward development close to town where values are potentially lower and perceptions are quite difficult. And at the moment, there isn't really a, an, a financial mechanism to realistically bring those sites forward. So there's a policy thing there, but also it, it requires a different kind of developer probably to be delivering say, the housing that we need or the mixed use. Um, and when you say a different kind of developer, what, what, what does that mean? 
Um, well, at the moment, I mean, uh, most of what we recognise and see now is is volume house builders um, providing housing to meet a target. Um, but there's a real opportunity, I think, for your small to medium sized business builders to try and get in on the market. They're actually usually um, out of that um, market because of the clout and the, the amount of spending power that the volume house builders have. So we need to find a mechanism for, for sites to come forward that are an appropriate scale that your local builders can actually get involved in because they're, they're fully invested in the place. They've got to live there too. So it, it's that longer term care for the place, I think comes from you know, really stimulating the small to medium sized enterprise businesses uh, to be involved in development. Um, and that's not an easy thing to do, but you can do that through how you, if you're a public sector landowner, how you divvy that land up or how you bring it to market can have a huge impact on who can actually bring development forward then. And Alafi, and I guess that ties in with all the stuff that you've been talking about, of getting people to actually talk to each other. Yes, getting people to talk to each other is where it is, and also understanding so that we can understand exactly the, the perspective and we can understand their objectives because we cannot do it alone. So we need to be able to understand obje- their objectives and then to be able to then come to uh, create our own shared objectives that will guide us going forward. And um, and also looking at and ensuring that no one is left behind in, in what we are doing, because that, that's an important aspect. Because sometimes when we refer to um, accessibility and inclusivity in, in, in what we are talking about, we hardly consider people uh, people with disabilities and how they are also going to be able to enjoy the environment, how they are, they are impacted by decisions economically, socially, and otherwise environmentally, how the decisions would affect them. So it's it's really us coming together, talking together all the time, and we cannot or creating platforms to also talk to to talk to one another or to be able to unnest that knowledge and to then be able to work on that knowledge and provide solutions together. So the co-creation, the co-production uh, approach that's being recommended now is it's something that we need to really take on board practically, not just talking about it. Now, uh, half an hour or so has flown by already, and we're going to sadly have to start drawing the conversation to a close. There's loads of stuff we haven't touched on. We haven't talked about the levelling up regeneration bill or the national planning policy framework or onshore wind. There's all sorts of stuff that we could go on to in huge amounts of detail. But what I really want to do is is to um, kind of bring the, the, the conversation round to a kind of a close with a, a, a key thought, if you like, what the key takeaways that you want people having listened to this conversation to say, right, okay, this is what we really need to be doing. So, Alafian, perhaps if I start with you, what's the key takeaway you want people to be thinking around when it comes to planning, climate change and the and the environmental crisis? Um, I would say to planners first, I'll start with planners, uh, to be more pragmatic and uh, creative in how we resolve the challenges, just, not just looking at what we have, what the status quo is, but to go outside of that, to think about how can we resolve the challenges, how can we as planners resolve the climate, help to resolve the climate crisis, and also to take our stance as planners and to be confident about what we have as planners. So that's very important. We need to address that, and that would affect how we go out to the public, And which my second recommendation is go out and speak to people. Let them understand their perspective 
and also let them understand what planning is is about. Um, to the to policymakers, say like planning has is is the, is the only profession in to a large extent within the built environment uh, professions uh, that has the opportunity to integrate approaches together and integrate disciplines together and coordinate that towards implementation. And so it's really important to bring planners on board across different spheres and across different conversations. So when it involves either industrial uh, planning, economic planning, and all uh, em employment planning, really bringing planners on board is very important and hearing the views and uh, trusting planners to do what they do best. Great stuff. Alafin, thank you very much. And Timothy, what's your key takeaway you want people to have? For me, it's about how we see ourselves in many ways. Uh, there will be a planning audience here and you know, we should see ourselves, you know, in the innovation space, really, because it's all about smart thinking and innovation, um, you know, and our plans and strategies and the decisions that we make as planners um, can deliver multiple stacked benefits. You know, there's so many uh, advantages in integrated thinking, and, and we are actually trained to do that. And I think it's, for us, it's feeling confident in that as professionals, as being, you know, really part of the solution. And, um, if you think about the, the different opportunities that we have to tackle the ecological emergency, the climate emergency, um, and also um, green growth um, in a way that doesn't leave people behind, you know, we're, we're at the heart of that as planners. So for me, the key takeaway for people in the planning world who listen to this, let's, let's be really proud of what we do and see ourselves as the innovators and the, 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 the creators of the future with our communities. Um, but secondly, in all that as well for anybody who's not in planning um, to, to maybe rethink what they think planning's about and, and come and speak to the planners uh, and find out uh, how we can all work together to make the world a better place. Because that's what it's all about at the end of the day, attempting to make the world a better place. Uh, Timothy Crawshaw, President of the RTPI, and Alafi Taiwo, Co-Chair of Planners for Climate Action. Thank you both ever so much for being with us today. It's been a fantastic conversation, really engaging, really inspiring. And I'm looking forward to uh, more people talking about planning and to the planners and making some good things happen. Thank you. Thank you, Rob. Thank you. Thanks once again to the sponsors of this episode, Atkins and the School of Geography and Planning at Cardiff University. You can read, watch and learn more about their work and about the full Planning for Tomorrow's Environment digital series by going to planningfortomorrow.rtpi.org.uk. And don't forget to visit contentwithpurpose.co.uk or find us on social to check out more of our podcast collaborations. <laughs>